James chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. Right here at the beginning, James is going to hit one of our favorite words. Ready for it? Be patient. You guys like that word? I don't know. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. <laughs> you wish sometimes James would just leave us alone. It's like, stop, James. So practical. Be patient. I think he's trying to make a point. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Waiting stinks. Does anyone here like to wait? No, seriously, is there anyone in here who likes to wait? Good, okay. <laughs> I don't like to wait. I generally don't wait well, right? I don't like lines. I don't like checkout lines. Shivering timbers at Michigan's Adventure in July, right? Your wait time is two and a half hours. Okay. Uh, MRIs, right? My shoulder, I remember that. Uh, oh, yeah, we can schedule for an MRI. Great. In a month and a half. Ugh. <laughs> you know, it's like want to know now. Right? Back surgeries. Yeah, we can do that in three months. It hurts now, right? Fast food at Wendy's. Right? Doctor's appointments. The dreaded we're experiencing higher than normal call volume. It doesn't matter when I call. You always have higher than normal call. Hire more people. Sam's Club gas station on Saturday afternoon. I heard a groan, right? Brazilian authorities waiting to decide if they're going to let you leave the country. (laughs) Even after the boss, the head federal police agent of all of Sao Paulo Airport, stamps and says you can leave. They still want to make you wait. John and I brought that stamp. We were so excited. We had this notarized. I mean, this guy was the big chief, you could tell. And and he stamps it. Um, it's, it's got his signature. I mean, the embossed and everything. We're like, yeah, get out of jail free. And we go up. And it still took them 20 minutes to decide whether they're going to. I'm like, what is the problem? And I said to the lady, I, I was trying real. I felt like I had been a good Christian long enough. But I, I held on. I held on. But I remember looking at the paper and I just said to the lady, I'm like, is this guy right here, is he your boss? And she's like, yes. I'm like, is this his signature? Yes. Then what's the problem? <laughs> you know, like, I was on the verge of not waiting well, but I knew John Kimball was there, and I was the youth pastor. <laughs> right. Waiting well. Traveling through Pennsylvania as a kid 
Massachusetts to Ohio. You know, the New England states, it's so exciting. We're going to visit grandma and grandpa, and they go so fast. You know, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, and making, and then you hit, and I remember as a kid, like, Pennsylvania was like the kiss of death entering Pennsylvania, because I knew for the next 11 million hours, I, every time I'd be asking dad, are we still in Pennsylvania? Yes. Are we still in Pennsylvania? Yes. Are we, like, it's a state that never ended, right? I just wanted to get to grandma and grandpa's. Waiting stinks. James says to wait, and to wait well. Be patient. So I want to talk this morning about how to wait well. First of all, we just have to have an orientation in our hearts to be patient. Patiently wait for the coming of Christ, a perspective, an orientation. I'm waiting for something sure, something significant. Be patient, therefore, the imperative to be patient, like we said, like we noted, is stated twice in verses 7 and 8, mentioned again in verse 10. The word steadfast and the word steadfastness are mentioned in verse 11. Pretty clear point is being made here, right? This patience and this steadfastness that James is calling us to, this is all coming in context. Uh, Last week, Jimmy was in the verses right before that, so the therefore, here are verse 12, it's connecting us back to those passages uh, where James is interacting, right? He's talking about the, the wicked oppressors who are making life miserable for the people of God. And, and much like the theme even throughout the Psalms, how many times in the Psalms does the psalmist say, God, how long? How long will the wicked prosper? Why does it seem that all the breaks go the way to the wicked? They have everything. And why does it seem like the righteous have it so hard, right? This is a theme in the Psalms. How long? How long? James is playing with the same themes here. He understands that, those frustrations. And we do. We look around in our world and we're like, why is it that wicked seems to prosper? The old hymn, right? Why does the, the wrong seem so strong? And remember what James said last week. He said, hey, he said they're going to get theirs. God is keeping track. There is an end game here. They will answer for their oppression. So he turns to us now with that in mind and says, so for you, Knowing that God is keeping score, God is going to force them to give an account, you just be patient and wait for Jesus to come back. Right? So that old hymn, though the wrong seems off so strong, what's the rest of that line? God is the ruler yet. That's what James is pointing to. But it's hard. We get frustrated. Right? There's a couple pictures here. They're a little small. These are pictures of... um, People affected by the war in Ukraine. I, the little girl with the little green jacket on, I just, I, I snapped this off the news feed. I kept it. I pray for her. I don't even know who she is. The other family there, that's Vladimir in the black shirt. I don't know Vladimir, but I read his story. And uh, that's his daughter, Natasha, holding the little four-year-old girl, Dominica. It's his wife and his other daughter. And I'm not going to read the account because it's rather graphic, but Vladimir describes what he saw after a shell exploded where they were hiding in the initial days of the war. And he described the condition of his little granddaughter, little four-year-old Dominica. And he just asked this question, like, why, God? Why would you allow this to happen? And I remember seeing that, and I remember I cried when I saw that. And I've prayed regularly for Vladimir that he would find Christ and find peace with Jesus. But you look at this stuff and it makes you so mad. You look at the condition, the brokenness 
of our world. And, and, and again, why does wickedness seem to have such a sway? You hear often, right, people talk about the problem of evil. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow wicked to go unpunished? And here's the answer that James is pointing us to right here. At the end of the day, understand and know this. He doesn't. He doesn't. James is saying, wait for God's vindication. Because God will vindicate Evil and wickedness will not go unpunished. And you've heard me talk about this before. I go, this is such an encouraging thing to me in the book of Revelation. Remember this? Where God is preparing to judge and, uh, the earth and the angel goes over to the altar with a golden censer and, and he scoops coals out of the altar and puts it in the censer. And, and the scriptures tell us, John tells us, that those coals are the prayers of God's people. And it's those hot coals, it's the prayers of God's people that that angel then takes and hurls it at the earth. The prayers, the cries, the groanings of God's people. Right there even in Revelation, remember the martyrs? How long, God? How long before you avenge us? And here they are now. God is saying, watch me as I act. And God pours out his judgment on evil and on the beast and on the dragon. And God says, I heard your prayers. And here now is my response. Evil will answer to me. And the righteous will be vindicated. And the lion of the tribe of Judah will stand victorious over his enemies. So this imperative of patience and be steadfast, this is meant to give perspective and encouragement to the people of God. So he uses this farmer example in verses 7 and 8. And he talks about the early and the late rains. And these were a big deal in Israel. He's talking about a fairly arid um, um, weather there, right, in, um, in, in Israel. And they're very dependent on these early and late rains, the early rains coming around this time of year in Israel that would, would soften the soil and allow them to be able to plant because he couldn't plant. Until that happened, the soil was so hard and it would plant and it would, and then the rains would continue a little bit and, and kind of, I, I think I remember right, spike a little bit in December and then the latter rains would come on towards March and April and that's where the harvest would be pushed over the edge and they'd be able to harvest. And, and he points to this illustration of a farmer. And the farmers understand this process, that there's a full necessary process that must unfold before harvest and completion. Right? The process has to come to its end. So these farmers in Israel, they don't panic. They, they don't plant in, in October and, and, and be like, oh, where is it? Where, where? There's nothing growing yet. Where? No. They plant and then they sit back and say, okay, I've got to wait out the process now. I've got to wait for the next round of rains. I have to wait for the latter rains. The process has to complete itself, right? Maybe we feel that way a little bit as a church right now too, right? We've, we're kinda, you're kind of in this thing and we're waiting and just seems, don't, things seem a little different. Things seem a little off. You're like, God, this is weird. <laughs> this feels weird. And like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and I'm like, now, now, fix this now. Now, 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 now. <laughs> God's like, I have a process. We have to trust that, Right? I want now, but God works through his own process. I've learned that God is notoriously uncooperative with my timelines. <laughs> and that's okay, right? When a process is interrupted, it's not a good thing. Right? My son was born at 
28 weeks. The process was interrupted. And there's consequences from that. Breathing and other things that Tyler has had to struggle with, right? The process has to see its way through. Remember the, the great classic movie, The Karate Kid, right? Daniel's son, right? Remember Mr. Miyagi? I want to learn, I want to learn karate, Mr. Miyagi, so I can beat up the bad guys who are bullying me. Okay. What's the problem? Right away, right? Daniel, Daniel wants this. Right away, right? And Mr. Miyagi says, here, go paint the fence. Paint the fence. This is stupid. Right? I'm done. And then he hands him a rag. What does he tell him? First service a little stronger. So I, they're, maybe a, they're just older. Right? <laughs> Wax on, wax off, right? And Daniel's like, Mr. Miyagi, this is stupid. I want to learn karate. And he's like, you are learning karate. And there's that scene where he says, throw a punch at me. And he does, and he does that. And he's like, huh. you know, and he's, and he's like, wax on, wax off, and kick me. And he does the, ah, see? Now we're watching it. We know that Mr. Miyagi's the wise old sage. <laughs> he's taking Daniel through a process. Knowing the process has to be completed before things are right. So James is reminding us of here. The farmer understands that. So he's calling us to put our coveralls on and say all and be farmers. Learn how to wait. Understand the process. He says in, in all of this, uh, oh, let me say this too. This is, uh, I love this, this terminology of the, latter, the former and latter reigns. In, in a Jewish mind hearing this, who James is writing to, right, mainly Jewish audience, their mind is going to go back to the Old Testament. And this terminology, the, the former, uh, the early and latter reigns, it is synonymous throughout the Old Testament with God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And you have several of these passages, Deuteronomy 11. He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Uh, Jeremiah 5, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rains, the early rains, and the spring rains, the latter rains, and keeps us for the weeks appointed to the harvest. And we could go on, Joel 2, several passages there that talk about God's goodness. So the Jewish mind hearing this, when James uses this terminology of the, of the early and latter rains, right away they're going, he's talking about God's faithfulness. So God in his process for us of waiting is being very faithful to us because he's accomplishing his work and his processes. They would have made that connection when they heard this terminology. James says, establish your hearts. This is what the farmer does. He establishes hearts. In essence, what he's saying is stand firm. Just, Just Prepare your mind now just to be in it for the long haul. Stand firm and don't give, don't give in to doubt. One translation is great. It says, put iron in your hearts. I love that. When we go on these wilderness trips, you know, you have portages where you're carrying your backpack in your canoe, and uh, sometimes, you know, your portage is 90 meters, sometimes it's 300, 400, 800, sometimes it's 2,000 meters. And um, on those long ones, uh, sometimes it's almost easier because I, I, I mentally just do this. You kind of put the thing on, on you and you start walking and kind of get your stride going, and then mentally I just kind of just say, you know what, here I am. Now I'm settling in for the long haul, and we're just going to go. 
Sometimes it's like the seven, 800 meter portages that are almost harder because I don't quite have that mentality settle in. I almost get this impatience. Like, and it's like, why does 800 meters seem like it just took two hours? It's because I'm just impatient. Like, when's it going to end? When's it going to end? When's it going to end? Instead of settling in. And that's what James is asking the people of God to do. Hey, settle in. Establish your hearts. Be strong here. He, I, I thought, my mind went to the example of, of Joseph. I've been reading Joseph in my devotions. And uh, Joseph did a great job of establishing his heart. His, his heart. He, he demonstrated patience in waiting. He demonstrated a patience in waiting for what God intended. Um, most commentators say that jo- jo- Joseph was probably around 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. He was about 40 years old when his brothers came back to Egypt looking for grain and, and, and everything was, was uncovered. He had about 23 years there. That's a long time. You guys remember his story, right? His brothers sell him into slavery because they hate him. So there's already a life is turning bad, and then he gets to Egypt. But, but he establishes his heart, and he lives his life in such a way in Potiphar's household that Potiphar ends up exalting him and putting him into this high level of leadership over all of his house. But then you know how the story goes, right? Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph, and she seduces him. And, and she was probably, you know, being royalty, and she's probably a beautiful woman, and, and there's this seduction. But, but you, Joseph, in his strength and his love of God and his devotion to God, says, how could I do such a thing and sin against my master and sin against my God? And, and he refuses. And what happens? He gets thrown in prison because she lies about it. And now you're like, well, now he's going to fade. Now he's going to turn his back on God. But no, he established his heart because then we know that when he's in prison, he lives his life in such a way that, that the captain of the guard puts him in control in prison. And I don't know, I didn't get a chance in all honesty to look into this, but when he's sold into slavery, you know what Potiphar is called? Potiphar is his position. It says the captain of the guard, Potiphar, is the one who bought him. Captain of the guard, singular. The one who puts him over everything in prison is the captain of the guard. I, I couldn't help but wonder. I'm like, is, it, is that still Potiphar? And did, Pot, did Joseph live his life in such a way that Potiphar probably understood that maybe these were bogus? He knew his wife. I don't know, you know. And I, be that as it may, he lived his life for God's glory in the midst of struggle and trial. He just established his heart. He did, just did what was right, faithfully and patiently. And you see how it ended. And, 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 and as time goes on, right, there's this killer famine. And, um, and, and the family, the promised family, uh, Jacob's and his sons, are, they're, they're facing the, the prospect of starving in Canaan. And so uh, Jacob sends them to Egypt. And at this time, Joseph, because of his faithfulness, God, uh, God he, he ended up getting out of prison because he interpreted some dreams for Pharaoh. And now he's second in command of all of Egypt. And his brothers come, and he recognizes them, and he's able to provide food and move the family down there. And what happens? They move down there, they establish themselves, and over the next 400 years, the promise to Abraham is made as the, the family multiplies and the great nation under the protection of Egypt is, is, is protected and they grow and they prosper. And when the brothers come, Joseph makes these very insightful statements. The heart of one who is established, who in the midst of difficulty keeps his eyes fixed on God, he said, hey, I want you to know something. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And God has used this for the saving of many lives. He established his heart's he established his heart. So James says that establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You can establish your heart because this is sure. It's coming. 
Jesus is coming back. Now, sometimes we're sitting here uh, and we're like, when? (laughs) You made that promise 2,000 years ago, right? Peter addresses this in his book. He says, there's going to be scoffers who are going to say, where's the promise of his coming? And Peter makes this great statement. He says, listen, you need to understand something. That with God, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. So don't be messed up by the fact that a lot of days have gone by, because God is just biding his time. God is the farmer who's patiently waiting for the process to complete before he comes back. This is where you need to put your confidence. This is where you need to fix your eyes. All will be well. The terminology here of the coming of the Lord is the word parousia. And what parousia means, it's the dwelling of someone important right alongside of you. Parousia is going to happen. The King of kings and Lord of lords is going to come. And he's going to sit beside you. He's going to be present with you. You just have to hang on till that. But it is coming and all will be well and all will be made right. Right? I like, as I went, uh, started feeling this when my, my daughter went to college, and I remember last year she'd come over, and I remember specifically Christmas break, and I'm watching the little app on the phone, and I'm seeing her dry, you know, and, and coming up through Ohio, and then coming across, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, and then, you know, they walk in the door, and they're there, and you're like, ah, it's together, all is well, family's all here. James is saying that's, that's what's coming for you, that's where you need to put your hope, all is going to be well. Right? You got that tracker on your phone, the Messiah, he's making his way. He's making his way. He is. One day he's going to be back. He's coming. He's coming to judge the wicked. He's coming to deliver the saints. I can't despair. I must remind myself constantly, I love this, the words of S.M. Lockridge, the old um, African-American speak, preacher who said, uh, Sunday is coming. <laughs> right. It may feel like Friday, but Sunday's coming. How do I wait well? Can't allow the pressures of my situation to lead to grumbling. Seems kind of like this arbitrary statement in the middle of all this. Oh, and don't grumble. You're kind of like, Why? where did that come from, James? You're... Part of it is the way wisdom literature works, but I think there's a, a big part of it is this. That the, when are we most likely to grumble and complain against life, against others? It's when there's pressure, right? When there's trial. James understood that. The people of God are under pressure here. Persecution. And he understands that oftentimes a logical response is grumbling, Right? Things aren't going the way I want, so I'm just mad at everybody. Right? Kids, we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? The kids don't, we don't get out of the house in time for the trip. I'm just mad at everybody. James is specifically here, um, he's focusing within the body of Christ, right? And sometimes we're so good, we excuse our, our complaining and our grumbling and our frustration by saying, well, that, you know, daddy just had a bad day. Well, James is like, deal with it. It still doesn't give you a right to shred other people. You don't grumble against one another. Don't complain against one another. I think this is a very natural application point here for James. Hey, wait patiently for the Lord. That's your perspective. Because if that's not your perspective, the pressure of this world is going to cause you to grumble and complain and be frustrated and sigh against one another. All of those things are, are bound up in that word. Right? We've seen this recently. Right? COVID provided a pressure. And there were times we didn't respond real well by not grumbling against each other. 
That's the kind of situation the church was in. There was outward pressure, and the people started lashing out at one another. And James is like, listen, you can't do that. The judge is at the door. That's a powerful statement. James is like, when you start complaining against your brother, guess what? Like, that ever happened when you're a kid, like you're doing something wrong, and all of a sudden there's like an adult standing there, and you don't know it, but your buddy does? And, and your friend's like, dude, dude, teacher, right, teacher. You know, and you're like, oh, the teacher. <laughs> That's what James is saying. He's like, you start complaining. James is like, dude, he's at, he can hear you. He's, he's at the door. He can hear you. I remember as a kid, we, uh, when I was in school, we, um, there was two floors to our school, and upstairs, um, we discovered a hole in the floor. Uh, above one of the classrooms. It was over by the window, and there's this little hole. And uh, Mr. Willette, who's our math algebra teacher, and he'd be teaching math and algebra down there. So me, and I don't know why we didn't have class or where me and my buddy would be, but over the period of like a couple months, every, every few days, we'd go up there, and we'd take a bunch of pennies, and we'd hold them on that, and we'd drop them down, and they, there was a wooden uh, bookcase below it, and they'd hit it, clank, 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 clank. And you could hear Mr. Willette, and he'd, he'd be quiet for a minute. He was just, he's from Maine. He had this draw, and... Be, you know, you just want to mess with Mr. Willett, but you hear him like, folks, stop throwing things around the room. And we'd wait, and, you know, and then eventually he'd call some kid out, and he'd be like, it was usually Kevin Pacheco. He'd be like, Kevin? Kevin's like, dude, I didn't throw anything. And we did this, this one off, we'd be up there dying laughing, and we were like, we'd, we'd wait a couple weeks, we'd go do it again, drop it up there, well... One day he must have put it together because uh, we were dropping stuff down this hole. Ding, ding, ding. And all of a sudden it got quiet. I think he said something like, you guys work on your work for a minute. I'm just going to. So we're up there clinking. We're, gonna, we're like laughing. And we're, all of a sudden we turn around and Mr. Willett's just standing in the door. And we're like, oh, hey. And he's like, hmm. And uh, we were in trouble. You know. Standing at the door. You're like, Man. James uses his terminology of the judge. You're going to be under judgment, like for grumbling. Like that seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? Or maybe grumbling and complaining against each other is a bigger deal than we would like to give it. Sometimes, well, grumble. The judge is there, and you're going to have to answer for that, right? Wait well. By not grumbling against one another. The imminence of Christ works both ways. It encourages us, but it also motivates us to holiness, right? Look to others who have endured as an encouragement to patiently wait in the face of suffering. Verses 10 and 11. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. He doesn't lift the, list the prophets. Some of them that came to my mind were Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 38, where he's preaching God's word and they're mad at him, so they toss him into an empty cistern to sink into the mud and he's left for dead for preaching God's word. And it takes 30 men, led by a man named Ebed-Melech, to come and, and rescue 30 men to pull him out here. That, he was in a mess. 30 men to rescue him. Right? Preaching God's word. He would have died there. Micaiah, in 1 Kings 22, he prophesied truth against King Ahab. Generally, you're signing your death warrant when you prophesy truth against King Ahab, right? Um, he's in, and he is. He's, he's beat up. He's thrown into prison. He's only given bread and water. You have Habakkuk, 
who didn't necessarily uh, face, you know, have physical things done to him, but you had Habakkuk. Remember, he's complaining, God, like, when are you going to punish your people? When are you going to punish the wickedness of Israel? And God says, oh, Habakkuk, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to punish me. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in, and they're going to come in and lay waste. And Habakkuk goes, whole, whole time, time out. God, listen, we're bad, they're worse. Like, I don't get this. And God says, listen, Habakkuk, I'm going to do that. And he explains some things to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk says, listen, though the, the, the olive crop fails, though there's no, no fruit in the field, yet I will praise God. He, he, he learns. Daniel, taken from his home, thrown into exile in Babylon, suffered, and yet he established himself. The heroes from Hebrews 11. Uh, one, one commentator, McCartney, he writes this, James refers to these Old Testament examples of faith to show not how extraordinary people of extraordinary power did marvels, but how ordinary people who shared the common human experience of suffering became extraordinary through their persevering faith in the face of adversity. We tend to think of these people as superhuman, and McCartney's saying, no, these are just ordinary people who just exhibited extraordinary patience in the face of suffering. And all of these people suffered, not because they did anything bad, but because they did what was right. right? So James uses this term, uh, steadfast. And he says, consider Job. You've heard of my servant, uh, you've heard of Job. We don't have time to delve into Job's story, but Job, man, he was, he was rich. He had a beautiful family, he had seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 500 yoke of oxen. 500 donkeys, many servants. These were all telltale signs in that world of wealth. And he had it made. And you remember the story, right? Satan comes into God's throne room, and, and uh, God says, yay, you see my servant Job, how faithful he is? And Satan's like, he only loves you because you've given him a lot. God says, fine, go ahead. Take everything away from him. And then the story unfolds, right? Job's 1.15, his oxen and his donkeys are stolen his servants are all killed. A messenger comes in right after that in verse 16 and fire from him. It says, fire came down, Job, from heaven and consumed all your sheep and all the servants with them. And on the heels of that messenger, another one comes in in verse 17. The Chaldeans have come and taken all your camels and executed all your servants. And in 18 and 19, another messenger comes in and he says, Job, is going to be really hard to hear, but I want you to know your, your kids were all eating together, all 10 of them together, in the house, and the roof collapsed and they're all dead. Heard of Job? Kathy related to me uh, from the women's thing last Saturday that Jen talking about her trials, struggles, losing Todd, and used Paul's terminology, these light and momentary struggles. Kathy said that was so good for me to hear. We just had a really rough week for one of our kids. And there's these times you just feel like, I just want, I'm done. I am done. There's a hope, light and momentary. Light and momentary. I've heard of Job. These are people just like me. I could take strength from their example. I could take encouragement from their example. And the tendency in bad times is to think negatively about God. I love this. Job proves that he doesn't serve God because of what he could get from God. He served God because he loved God. 
Even his wife tried to turn on him, tried to turn him against God. What James means here is that we're not always smiley and fake happy, right? God understands our doubts, our questions, our frustrations and fears. In fact, Paria catches just a little bit when you read this about Job because you're like, man, Job actually did have some weak moments. In Job chapter 3, verse 1, in 11 through 19, he curses the day of his birth. Curse the day I was born. In Job 16, 2 through 3, he blasts his friends for their counsel. That one was probably legitimate. His friends were idiots. But he, he has this outburst. He's angry. But here's the one, and I wish that we don't have time to read them, but in Job 30, verses 20 through 23, in Job 7, 11, 10, 18, and 23, 2, Job protests directly to God. God, I don't think this is fair. God, the way you're treating me. William Barclay writes this, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flames of faith were never extinguished in his hearts. Job struggled. He did question. But he refused to give up his hope in God. His heart was steadfast. And you see this in some of his responses. In Job 1.21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2.10, he says to his wife when she's saying, Job, just curse God and die. What is wrong with you? And he says, shall we accept good from God and not bad as well? And it says, goes on to say, in all of this, Job did not sin. In Job 13, 15, Job says, Though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. 16, 19, he says, My witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. He has this trajectory of steadfastness throughout. He doesn't turn his back on God. So in James 5, 11, James says, Blessed are these, these prophets in Job, because they remain steadfast. Right, these are like the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when you're insulted and when you're persecuted, for your reward is in heaven. And note that both of these say, blessed, not happy. I've heard people do that before. Happy are you when, that's not, Jesus didn't use the word happy. That's a bad word. That's not what Jesus meant. Blessed, blessed. Malcolm Muggridge wrote this. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Blessed are you when you suffered. James is, uh, Job is blessed. And be very careful here, because I think our tendency would be like, well, yeah, he was blessed. He was blessed because God, at the end of the story, gives him everything back and then some. And our mind goes to this physical, material wealth that Job would see. Yeah, I guess he was blessed. Don't do that. That is not why Job was blessed. Take your Bibles as we get ready to end here. Turn, turn to Job 42. I want you to see this. Job chapter 42.
This is after a back and forth with his friends and after God responds to him. And we sang this this morning, right? Behold our God, when, when it, you know, who has who's made the heavens and who has drawn the lines for the ocean and, and all of these things, who has the storehouses of snow. These are all things that, that God asked Job in making Job realize you're God and I'm not. And here's Job's response in chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The blessing God's compassion and goodness and gracious wasn't shown through giving us stuff again or restoring everything out that we wanted, that we thought we lost. It's spiritual in nature. In Job 42, Job confesses that he had learned. He was humbled. He said, I know that you can do all things. This is the treasure. This is the blessing. He saw God as he had never seen him before. Job repented. This is blessing. Because whenever God causes us to confront things in our life that are wrong or misplaced or out of perspective, that is blessing when we can repent and fix those things. He learned about God. He was changed. His character was developed. He says, I had heard of you now I saw you. And I can say that there are things that we go through in life. There are times when like life stinks and you're like, I hate this. I hate this. What? But then I look at my life and I see myself driven to God and I look at what I've learned and how I've grown. And sometimes it takes some days and weeks to process. But you look back at a perspective and you're like, I see God like I never would have seen him before. That's blessing. That's blessing. Job said, I heard of you. I grew up in church. I went to Ignite. I listened to Pastor Craig every Wednesday night in youth group. I heard. Now I see you. That's blessing. Hmm. All these men who suffered, these prophets, they're blessed. Jeremiah, right? He's persecuted, but he prophesies about a new covenant that is coming where God will put his spirit in us. Ezekiel is contradicted and humiliated publicly as he prophesies from exile in Babylon. He loses his wife, but he prophesies about a new temple that's going to come where God is going to dwell with his people. Daniel, taken from his home, targeted by his rivals, thrown into a lion's den, prophesies to the day when the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. They all saw God in a new way. And heard from God in a new way. That's how we wait well. Understand that there's blessing coming. The last point, this is a quick one. But uh, be people of truth while you patiently wait. Be people of truth while you patiently wait. This again seems kind of random. But it, it just fits with James' concern. James seems to understand that in the pressures of life and everything, one of the easiest ways to sin is with our tongues. So He talks about the grumbling here. He says you just need to be people of integrity. They had developed an art. It's funny reading some of this stuff. They had developed an art of, of swearing and oath, oath-taking 
where, you know, and we understand this, right? When you're kids, like, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. Like, I want to make you say enough things so I can believe you. And then I end up lying anyway. And you're like, well, what? Well, you're like, well, I didn't say stick a needle in my eye. I said stick a needle in your eye. And you just missed the little nuance. And so you're like, oh. But they had become really skilled at this. And it had become a problem. And James is like, you know what? The Christian should need no oath should need nothing else. You should be such a person of integrity that your yes be yes, your no be no, so that when you say yes or you say no, we know that that's it. No oath needed. Why does this matter in this context? I think it's this, in the midst of struggle and, and, and everything else the church was facing. We got to be able to trust each other. We got to know we're speaking truth to one another, right? A house divided can't stand. Are you waiting well? Are you waiting well? Jesus is coming back. The king is returning. Put your hope there. And then the days when you don't have the eyes to look up, put your hope there. Call someone. Call a brother. Call someone. Say, I, I don't have the eyes right now. I can't look. Maybe I don't even want to look. And let's speak truth to one another. Lift each other up and encourage one another. Point each other to Jesus. Let's wait well.